produced at the Justice Building in Little Rock, Arkansas, this is Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Hi, I'm Karen Trico-Stewart, Public Education Coordinator for the Arkansas Supreme Court, and thanks for joining us for the premiere episode of this podcast. On the podcast, four women Supreme Court justices, all from different states, come together to discuss the law and its real-world implications. When we talk about the Constitution or the Supreme Court, most of us are referring to the U.S. Constitution or the U.S. Supreme Court. Yet so many aspects of our daily lives are governed by our state's laws and our state's constitution. And that's where this podcast comes in. The focus will be on our nation's state courts. That's where the vast majority of cases, more than 90%, are heard. And if they're appealed, it's state courts that usually serve as the final arbiters on the issues. Coming up on the program, a discussion about America's other constitutions. Residents of the United States all live under the U.S. Constitution, but every state also has its own constitution. And these written documents can be quite different from state to state. Justice Rhonda Wood of the Arkansas Supreme Court leads the discussion, accompanied by women Supreme Court justices from Michigan, Texas, and West Virginia. Well, welcome to the First Lady Justice podcast. I'm Justice Rhonda Wood from the Arkansas Supreme Court, and I'm here with Justice Beth Walker, Justice Bridget McCormick, Justice Eva Guzman, and we are here together to try to educate the public and um, sort of raise the collective education and information out there about state appellate courts. A combination of the four of us had worked together over the last four years on a variety of court and public education projects. And this spring was the first time that all four of us worked together on one project when we did a Zoom interview with my 10-year-old granddaughter on YouTube. Following that experience, the four of us decided we wanted to continue working together on joint public education projects Um, to educate on the court system, and that collectively, as for women state Supreme Court justices from across the country, we thought we had um, diverse um, geographical and unique voices to bring to this. And that led us today to launching our Lady Justice podcast on Constitution Day, which is the theme of today's podcast. Each podcast will have a unique theme, and each of us will take turns serving as a discussion leader. Today, you get me, Justice Rhonda Wood from Arkansas. Our nation's constitution was signed on September 17, 1787, and then eventually became ratified by the states. In 2004, Constitution Day became an official holiday. But since we are four state appellate justices, we are going to focus today on how our state constitutions interact with the United States Constitution. And we'll begin with a brief history of our various state constitutions. I'm curious about how old all of your constitutions are. I know in Arkansas, we are on our fifth constitution, um, and that's the 1874 constitution. We had our first constitution when our state was formed, and then we had two other constitutions during the Civil War. And then after the constitution, we had two more constitutions, and that led us to the last one, our fifth one. Um, It's interestingly called um, the Thou Shalt Not Constitution, 
because there was a lot of distrust in the government following the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so it's known as what thou shalt not, meaning that the powers that the government shall not have. Um, instead of a grant of powers to the government, it's a limitation on the powers of the government. And so I'm just really curious about your particular histories and your state constitutions and what they're like. Justice Guzman. Thank you, Justice Wood. I'm delighted to join Lady Justice Podcast and to take this opportunity to talk about the history of the Texas Constitution. Our current Constitution was adopted on February 15th, 1876. It is one of the longest state constitutions in the United States. Over 460 amendments that have been approved. So it is one of the most frequently amended constitutions in the country. Um, it was once known as the Constitution of the Republic of Texas. And that's because Texas was its own country. Texas won independence from Mexico in 1836, adopted that first constitution. And then when Texas was admitted to the United States of America in 1845, another constitution was adopted at that time. The other interesting fact is uh, Article 5 of the Texas Constitution, which talks about, as is relevant to our podcast, the Judicial Department and describes the powers and the jurisdiction of our state Supreme Court um, and our various uh, other courts, including the Court of Criminal Appeals. Super interesting how um, unique state constitutions are. I, I mean, I'm, I'm really, really loving being part of this conversation. Thank you all for including me. This is Bridget McCormick from Michigan. Um, and I'm fascinated that both Arkansas and Texas are operating off um, constitutions from the 19th century. Michigan has had four constitutions. The first was in 1835, two years before we became a state. The next was 1850. Um, but we've had two um, in the 20th century. We had one in 1908 and one in 1963. I can't wait to hear what, what West Virginia does, but right now ours is the most modern among the constitutions we're talking about. And, and, and like each version of our state constitution, the 1963 constitution was really a product of its time. Um, it was the first convention where um, the delegates were not all white men. Uh, nine, there were nine white women, three black women, 11 black men. Um, as, as delegates that year, there were 144 delegates um, in total. And you can see in the, the 1963 Constitution, the impact of the civil rights movement. It's reflected directly in Article 1, Section 2, which um, not only demands equal protection for all persons, just like the federal constitution, the United States Constitution, but it also directs that no person, and I quote, be denied the enjoyment of his civil or political rights or be discriminated against in the exercise thereof because of religion, race, color, or national origin. And that's a far broader statement and more specific statement than the federal equal protection clause. Um, and of course, notably for our purposes today, it does not mention gender or sex, um, which is perhaps another reflection of, of the time. Um, but it was also the first constitution in the country uh, to mandate the creation of a state civil rights commission to carry out the constitution's guarantee, guarantees against discrimination. So it's really like a, a, a living, it really reflects what was happening at, at the time of that convention. And it's, it's, it's super fascinating the ways in which state con con 
constitutions really are um, the personalities of, of our states. Um, so this is going to be a really fun conversation to learn about, about your constitutional personalities. Well, I completely agree with my friend from Michigan, and this is Beth Walker from the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. Um, I hate to disappoint you, Bridget, but um, our constitution is also old. Um, although we almost had one, there was a, an effort to have a constitutional convention in 1964 that eventually failed. But uh, we have had two constitutions in West Virginia. The first one was ratified by voters in 1863, just prior to West Virginia becoming the 35th state later that year. Uh, we were born on June 20th of 1863, just a couple of weeks before the Battle of Gettysburg, actually. Um, and I think our second constitution then was ratified in 1872, following a number of disputes about post-war loyalty amendments and other issues that arose after the Civil War concluded. But it's, um, I think understanding our constitution uh, involves understanding a little bit about West Virginia history, which a lot of folks don't uh, know. We are the only state that was born out of the Civil War. Sometimes we are called the child of the rebellion. Um, there had been a long-standing conflict between the folks in Eastern Virginia, which is what is Virginia now, and Western Virginia. Um, a lot of disputes, not unlike the disputes between the United States and Great Britain um, about taxation without representation and property rights. Um, but eventually, when Virginia seceded from the Union, that was the last straw in West Virginians. Um, one politician, actually, at the time, called it the crowning act of infamy. So when we talk about um, cur the current political division in our country, which I'm sure we'll talk about in and out of this podcast, um, it's good to remember that it's nothing new. Uh, there was a similar level of... Um, a division during the Civil War, prior to the Civil War, after the Civil War, and West Virginia uh, was part of that uh, discussion, actually. It wasn't entirely clear um, that the method of creating West Virginia as a state was actually legal. Um, and I'll end with this little story, and that is, um, of course, the federal constitution in Article 4, Section 3, provides that no new state may be formed in the geographical area of an existing state without that state's consent. Well, Virginia has seceded from the Union. And so a group of West Virginia, who would become West Virginians, formed the Reform State Government of Virginia, sort of a new Virginia, and kind of used that Reform Government of Virginia to give the consent required under the federal constitution um, in order for West Virginia to become a state. Uh, I think both sides of the dispute uh, agreed that it was probably a little questionable at the time. President Lincoln was um, very loyal, appreciated the loyalty of the Western Virginians, and so he uh, led it through. Uh, but it has sort of an interesting history that uh, has a lot to do with what our Constitution is as it is right now. That's so interesting about... Um well, one is we forget sometimes about the how West Virginia was created as a state and even Texas that, you know, we often forget about how it started as a republic um, and the history of that. But uh, I can't imagine now I'm curious to go read the Michigan Constitution because the difference between that and our three states um, you know, coming out of the civil rights in the 1960s and ours being in the 1800s. Um, 
it has to just be vastly different. Um, I just, I can't imagine Bridget compared to what we see. And Eva, I'll never um, get frustrated again when I'm going through that we have a constitutional challenge and I'm trying to comb one part of our constitution to another part to try to see which, you know, trumps which part and compare it. Because obviously ours is not near as lengthy and difficult to go through <laughs> as yours is. Um, so one thing that I also find interesting is there's so much focus um, in the press and even civics education on the United States Constitution, um, and rightfully so, it's the constitution of our nation, um, but that often our state constitutions are overlooked. Uh, and when you think about how our nation was designed, the, the federal constitution and the rights given are really the minimum and the minimum sort of bar and standard for rights, but our state constitutions can give our citizens more protections um, and sort of raise the level. Um, and so we see so many times people are frustrated um, with feeling like there's not enough protections in the US constitution and um, there's either outcry or there's you know frustration with maybe a decision out of the US Supreme Court um, and they overlook that there are all these other constitutions in their particular states' constitutions that may afford the citizens, you know, more rights and what they're looking for. And so I'm curious about if your particular states, um, if how often that occurs and um, if there's instances and examples of where your state has given more protection than the U.S. Constitution. Um, I, I'm always... Um looking for litigants in my court, um, this is Bridget from the Michigan Supreme Court again, to, to raise a state constitutional um, challenge to an issue that, that, that there is a coextensive federal constitutional provision. Because often we will look differently at the way our state constitution um, addresses the same issue. So in Michigan, for example, um, my court, the Michigan Supreme Court, has held uh, that the Fourth Amendment provides greater protection to citizens um, than the, the the United States Constitution's um, similar provision. Um, that was the language of our, our state constitution is not different, but the court's interpretation of it and how it applies to Michigan citizens is um, that it is a broader protection um, uh, for 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 folks in Michigan. Um, and perhaps maybe even um, more dramatically is how uh, the takings clause um, is, is viewed differently. Um, in 2004, the Michigan Supreme Court issued an opinion that the Michigan takings clause um, prevented the government from exercising eminent domain by taking private property and transforming it, I'm sorry, transferring it to, to private entities under the justification that it facilitated economic development. But of course, a year later, the United States Supreme Court held in Kilo that this type of um, taking was properly exercised under the federal takings clause um, because it qualified as public use. There's lots of lots of uh, lots to be lots to read about that decision. Obviously, an important decision and one about which lots of people disagree. Um, but in response to that decision, the Michigan voters approved an amendment to our constitution's taking takings clause that basically codified our decision um, a year before Kilo 
and um, went a little bit further to place additional protections for property owners in Michigan. So private property, the right of private property and the government's ability to um, interfere with that right is one that our state constitution protects um, greater than the federal constitution. Um, and just this year, that became a really important issue in one of the cases we had to decide about um, tax foreclosures. In, in Michigan, like a number of other states in the country, the legislature passed a statute now 20 years ago that allowed um, uh, county governments, when they foreclosed on private property for tax delinquencies, and sold that property to not only um, keep whatever was owed, but also to keep the surplus equity. Um, and uh, the court held um, unanimously that that violated our state takings clause. It's not clear that it violates the United States taking clause, although it's a hard question, I will say. Um, but because we decided it under our state's takings clause, um, uh, it was a maybe it was an easier one, easier decision for us to make, make unanimously. Well, let me, uh, this is Beth from West Virginia and playing off a point uh, that you make, Justice McCormick, on this issue of whether litigants are pursuing under state constitutions or federal constitutions. Um, you know, our framers, were pretty, uh, the firms of the federal constitution were pretty deliberate about that. James Madison in Federalist 45 noted that the powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary, ordinary course of affairs concerns the life, liberty, and property of the people and internal order and improvement and prosperity of the state. That makes the point that you know, the, the federal, the framers of the federal constitution intended the state constitutions to be specific to their geography and needs and their folks um, and not necessarily, you know, and have kind of a patchwork depending on, I mean, that's, that's the essence of federalism. And, you know, this more recently uh, than Federalist number 45, Ju Judge Jeffrey Sutton um, talks about in a book that's really interesting, it's called 51 Imperfect Solutions about state constitutions. And he points out that it started with the thinking that state courts would be sort of the first responders when it came to uh, civil rights and rights disputes. But now all of our culture has sort of shifted to looking at the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution. And while those are really very, very important, uh, I love that this podcast is talking about what's going on in the states. Um, West Virginia, like Michigan, uh, I've learned just now and didn't know before, is also very protective of property rights. Um, in the context of eminent domain, uh, which Bridget, you talked about, um, West Virginia is like about half the states, and we provide more protection to property owners than the U.S. Constitution. Uh, our Article 3, Section 9 provides that private property shall not be taken or damaged for public use without compensation. And that word or damaged makes our Constitution more protective because uh, that way the state uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of law about what constitutes a taking and what is just compensation. Um, but it's in order for a private property owner to be entitled to pursue compensation, it's not, it doesn't have to be a taking in West Virginia. It can simply be damage. Um, so that's one way that, uh, you know, West Virginia decided uh, in its framers. Uh, 
or actually, I don't know if this was in the original constitution. I should probably look it up uh, or in, or has been amended. I sense that it was in the original constitution. Our framers were more protective of property rights. Uh, state constitutions are also where we get the guarantees for public education. I think uh, every single state has provisions in its constitution uh, for public education. Ours in West Virginia is in Article 12, Section 1, and it requires the legislature to provide a thorough and efficient system of free schools. And of course, none of that is addressed in the federal constitution. So the fact that we have public education in this country is a function of state constitutions. I think that Arkansas is, is probably similar, it sounds like, to Michigan, that um, we've had our Supreme Court has interpreted sort of the protections of the Fourth Amendment, which for us, that's Article 2, Section 15 for search and seizure, much more protective of our citizens than I think the U.S. Supreme Court has. So um, from knock and talks to knock and announce, we've been way more restrictive um, in the cases that have come to the Arkansas Supreme Court, um, specifically um, reluctant to have law enforcement do knock and talks at night um, in, versus the day. Um, and just, it, I think it does derive from what um, Beth and Bridget talked about, about the protection of people's rights in their homes and their property rights. It sort of derives from that um, and protecting the citizens. I think part of the issue, and I, I don't know how it occurs in your courts, but we don't see too often um, that attorneys raise that set that separate state constitutional issues. Do you see that, Bridget, that you sort of wish that it was raised more? I, I can't tell you how many times I've even asked um, lawyers in oral argument, um, why didn't you raise this same claim under the state constitution? Um, it's a, I, don't, I don't know why there are bad habits about that. And I, I agree with Beth. I can, I, Jeff Sutton's book is really interesting on this topic. And um, might spur a little bit more lawyering around state constitutional claims that won't necessarily run um, directly coextensively with the federal constitutional doctrine. And it's, it's, you know, the whole idea of having 51 experiments around the country as we get to sort of, you know, try on new constitutional clothes, see how they work before you roll it out for the whole country, right? It's, a, it's, it's actually not a bug of our system. It's a feature. Um, so I hope... Any lawyer listening to this podcast will start figuring out how to do more of that. Well, and I guess that we can all check back in down the road and see if if maybe we've spurred some of the attorneys that hopefully listen in to suddenly we see a rise and we hear from the trial judges that they're raising those issues since that's where it has to start. Um, the We talked a little bit about, and Eva mentioned hers, um, about amending the Constitution and the amendments. And, um, Definitely, there's pros and cons to having your process easy or difficult um, to amend your constitution. And we know the United States, um, it's difficult and there are limited amendments. I'm curious how your state compares um, with what the amendment process is like. Um, Bridget, what's yours like? Yeah, in Michigan, it's actually, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's all relative. I, I, and I, I will um, say I've now lived in Michigan for 22 years, um, and I practiced in New York and New Haven before that and grew up in New Jersey. And, and compared to those states, it seems incredibly easy to amend the Michigan Constitution. I mean, not easy 
easy, easy, but a lot easier than a number of other states. So there are three ways you can do it in, Mich in Michigan. The legislature can do it um, by a two-thirds majority vote. It can place a proposed amendment on the next um, general election ballot, or it can have a special election. Um, and if a majority of the voters adopts it, it's amended. Um, the second way is the people can place a proposed amendment on the ballot if they get a certain number of residents to sign a petition in support of it. Um, that number is set by constitution. It's equal to 10% of the votes cast in the last gubernatorial election. So it's tied to you know, the number of people who participated um, in, in the last election. Um, and then if they get those signatures, it gets placed on the ballot. And if a majority enacts it, that's it. It's an amendment. And then, of course, every 16 years, the voters are asked if um, a constitutional convention should be convened. And if a majority say yes, a convention takes place. And then um, amendments can be passed by the delegates and put to the people for adoption um, within 90 days after the, after the convention. The last time that question was put to the voters was 2010, and it was rejected by 66% of the voters. Um, so we'll be, I guess, um, coming up against that again in, in, in six years or so. Um, since the 1963 convention, there have been 76 proposed, proposed amendments that have been placed on the ballot. 34 were approved and 42 were rejected. Um, 43 were put there by the legislature. Um, of those, it was sort of half and half, 22 approved, 21 rejected. And 33 were put on there by initiative, by the people. Um, and 12 were approved and 21 were, were rejected. That feels to me like a pretty robust um, amendment uh, system. But then when I heard Eva say that in Texas, they've amended it 4,053,000 trillion times, I started to feel like we need to make it easier. I don't know. Well, um, I think what what's what is it they say down there? This is Beth in West Virginia. Is everything's bigger in Texas, right? So uh, <laughs> I guess they have a bigger constitution and more amendments. But uh, uh, here in West Virginia, we use um, one way to amend our constitution. Talking about the three methods, uh, playing off of the three methods in Michigan, and that is the combination of legislative action and voter approval in West Virginia. Uh, it's Article 14, Section 2, and it requires a supermajority, two-thirds vote, of both houses to put the measure forward and put it on the ballot, either in a general election or in a special election. Um, it can originate in either house of the legislature, but uh, interestingly, we do not have the citizen option that was option two that Bridget talked about in, in Michigan, where the citizens can get a certain number of signatures and put them on the ballot. That's not available in West Virginia, so I guess you could score us as not as easy to amend, maybe, uh, as, as other states. Um, our constitution has been amended a mere 77 times, um, 15 at least of those, maybe a few more, uh, are unique and specific to uh, powers to put out public bonds. So when you knock that number down in terms of substantive amendments, um, we have not had that many, it sounds like, than other states. Um, the most interesting one, uh, politically and otherwise, and certainly most relevant to the courts, was the amendment, the constitutional amendment in 2018, which actually placed the budget of the judiciary uh, under the control of the legislature for the very first time. Prior to that, uh, the judiciary uh, essentially could, and when I talk about the judiciary, I'm saying the courts. Our courts are unified in West Virginia. I'm sure we'll talk about that, those differences in a future podcast, but um, 
the Supreme Court of Appeals, where I sit, supervises all of the courts in West Virginia, and we're all under one budget. So we have about 1,500 people that work for the courts. That budget did not used to have to have legislative approval or control. The courts would go to the legislature and say, here's how much money we need to run the courts. And the legislature essentially would have to make that grant of, of funds. So now under the new amendment, uh, the legislature actually controls the budget of the judiciary, as it also does with the budget of the executive branch. Uh, so it was an uh, interesting change and one that's going very well, I might report. Uh, we have an excellent uh, relationship with the legislature these days. And um, actually, I want to uh, say I, I got a lot of good ideas from my friend in Michigan uh, about making that transition to a new way of dealing with the legislature. Well, in Arkansas, and this is Rhonda Wood, um, we have 100 amendments to the Constitution, and I thought that was a lot, again, until I heard from Eva. Um, and um, our Constitution is primarily um, amended through citizen petitions. That's the main method. We do have the legislative method, um, where the members of the legislature, they are limited to three proposals um, per regular session. And they're in session every other year, and then they can place them on the next um, general election. Um, our citizen method, um, again, is like yours, Bridget, where it's like 10% of the voters. Right now, I think it's about a little less than 90,000 citizens. Um, we have a process. It, it recently just changed, but the ballot name, the popular name and the ballot title, which is what the voters see when they go into the voting booth, that used to have to be approved by the attorney general. It's now changed where it has to be approved by the state board of election commissioners. But either way, whatever, whether it's the legislators or it's the citizens, whatever that is, um, every year that usually ends up being approved sometime in August or September, um, whoever, if they deny that it's misleading to the public, not simple enough, anything wrong with it, and they don't let it get on because of the signatures, then there's a lawsuit and that's direct filed with the Arkansas Supreme Court to reverse that ruling. If they approve it, whoever is against that particular amendment files a lawsuit claiming they shouldn't have approved it and it's misleading. So usually every October, the Arkansas Supreme Court, that's our focus every two years, um, is we pretty much shut down and that's all we deal with is going through the ballot title challenges and the signature count challenges if it's close and trying to get those decisions made before early voting starts. Um, and so that's just, we're swamped every year. Um, this year, there was a little bit change in the process. So that process for our court started mid-August um, so that we've begun that process um, now. But usually um, the the public approves almost everything that ends up getting on the ballot. Um, so there's three to five a year lately. And in the last maybe decade, pretty much everything that is on the ballot gets approved um, recently. So that's sort of how it works. Um, and so it's a big part of what we do at the Supreme Court that I did not realize till I ran for it. But um, that's one of those you know, unknown jobs that is not real publicized. But so Eva, how did you get your 400 plus amendments or four gazillion as Bridget said? 
Well, in, in Texas, the only method prescribed for amendment is in Article 17, and that's by a legislature. So proposed amendments must be approved by two-thirds membership of both houses of the legislature, ratified by a simple majority of the voters qualified to vote in elections. Uh, and the, the the reason that I think we've had so many amendments is that the um, Constitution specifically creates the, the powers for state officials and amendments become necessary when um, circumstances call for a, a redistribution of the authority or the power of any particular office, that sort of. Well, so we're coming to the end of our podcast and but I'm going to ask you sort of to briefly, um, as we wrap up our discussion on our state constitution, to maybe tell me and our listeners um, what is sort of, if you have a particular provision of your constitution that speaks to you or that um, stands out to you that, that you really think that the listeners and the citizens of your state should know about that you think is worthy that... Um, that you just want to mention. And so um, we'll start with Beth from West Virginia. Well, thank you, Rhonda. And um, I know I speak for everybody when I say how excited we are to um, be doing this podcast and for you to have taken the lead on our first topic. So thanks for doing that. Um, I will, of course, first I'll talk about probably one of our best known or, or most beloved provisions of the West Virginia Constitution by West Virginians, and then I'll talk about one that's particularly relevant in these times. The first one, of course, is Article 3, Section 22. That is our right to keep and bear arms in West Virginia. Um, it's very important to West Virginians, and our our essential, uh, our, our for Second Amendment, which refers to the federal constitution, our version of that states that a person has a right to keep and bear arms for the defense of self, family, home, and state, and also for lawful hunting and recreational use. Uh, that is in our constitution and it is held dear by West Virginians. But in, in our current times, and given what I talked about, uh, West Virginia's birth during the Civil War, um, I'll mention our Bill of Rights, and I think it, it plays off of something Eva talked about earlier in Texas. Um, and our Article 3, Section 1, uses a more expansive language than the United States Constitution when it comes to rights. And that is, it states that all men are, by nature, equally free and independent and have certain rights. When then goes on to sort of mirror what we have in the federal constitution. Uh, going back to its roots, West Virginia has a long history of being independent. Our state motto is mountaineers are always free. And so um, in, in, the, in the times we are talking about civil rights as we, as we should be right now, um, I'm very fond of the fact that West Virginia has had that language uh, for a very long time. Well, for me, from Arkansas, uh, I am particularly fond of Article 1, which states, all political power is inherent in the people and the government is instituted for their protection, meaning the people's, the people's protection, security, and benefit. They, meaning the people, have the right to alter, reform, or abolish the same in such manner as they may think proper. And so I think particularly given the times that we're in, that people sometimes are feeling that 
you know, they're just, the government is, is maybe just too much right now. And that there are people and groups that feel oppressed or feel, you know, just overwhelmed and that our Arkansas constitution begins with the political power is inherent in the people and the government is instituted for the protections of the people and that that's how our Arkansas constitution begins. And so I just, to me, reminding the citizens, especially of Arkansas, that that, that is how our framers way back in 1874, you know, started our constitution. So I don't know, Eva, is there something particular in your constitution? I'm going to begin by mentioning one of my favorite parts of the Texas Constitution, and that's the preamble. And it reads, humbly invoking the blessings of Almighty God, the people of the state of Texas do ordain and establish this Constitution. I think the preamble really speaks to the spirit of our founding fathers. Beyond that, I'm also going to mention freedom of speech, the Article One uh, Bill of Rights, Section 8, it reads, every person shall be at liberty to speak, write, or publish his opinions on any subject. This is particularly important right now at this moment in American history, and that's the right of individuals to communicate their views, their opinions, their ideas on any subject, whether it's popular or unpopular, we can do so without fear of retaliation or censorship. This is such an important and valuable right for us as Americans. It is worth understanding. It is worth defending. It is fundamental to our growth as a society. Michigan has a um, the similar article one section one, um, like Arkansas's uh, best solve power with the people. And I think it's really important that um, people understand that, that that's, that's how it starts. Um, and in fact, the ability to amend it is, as we talked about previously, um, something that people uh, have a right to do anytime they don't like the way it's working. Um, but I like, I'm a little bit fond of article one section three, which says the people have a right peaceably to assemble to consult for the common good, to instruct their representatives, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Obviously, the right to peaceably assemble is really important um, in any democracy, um, and I like that it's spelled out. But I also love that we have a constitutional right to consult for the common good. Not exactly sure who we have a right to consult with, each other, our representatives, um, it doesn't say, but there's something about elevating the act of consulting for the common good to a constitutional right that I really love. Um, it's, it's a reminder that we are constantly striving for a more perfect union. Um, and finally, the fact that that same clause recognizes the right to petition the government for redress of grievances echoes the Declaration of Independence, right? After, the, um, uh, after laying out their complaints against the king, the framers um, in the declaration said, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. And our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injuries. Um, and it makes me think that when I like hearken back to the framers of the 1908 Michigan constitution, which is where that clause first appears, they had that history in mind when they when they included that language. And I, I, 
I, I sort of, I sort of like that ties us to our, our founding as a nation and reminds us that even in our state government, um, that's the way it's supposed to work. Well, so I'm going to wrap up and say thank you to my colleagues and justices from around the country. And um, I'm excited and hopefully anyone listening found this valuable. And I look forward to the next podcast, which will be led by one of the other justices. But until then, happy Constitution Day and take care. Thanks for tuning in to the premiere episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. The views expressed on the podcast were the justices alone and not the views of their respective courts. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and in other podcasting apps. And please consider passing it on to others. We'd like to hear from you. So send feedback to podcast at arcourts.gov. You could visit the Arkansas Judiciary's website at arcourts.gov or find us on Facebook or Twitter at arcourts. Thanks to Adam Simon of Simon Sound Studios for production assistance. And thanks to Arkansas Supreme Court Chief Justice Dan Kemp for his commitment to civics education and support of this podcast. And a quick plug for our other podcast, Courts and Community. It's a series of one-minute segments on the Arkansas court system, how it functions, its role, and its history. You've been listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, a podcast produced by the Arkansas Supreme Court's Public Education Program. Thank you.